0: The mere mention of its name conjures images of demons, torture, and the devil himself. But does the underworld exist, or is it simply myth and superstition? There is a castle in the forest of the Czech Republic, and it is said that a portal to hell itself exists beneath its foundation. So join us as we dive into the spine-chilling mystery of Huska Castle here on Mystery Archives. Thirty miles north of Prague, in the cold forested mountains, lies an ancient stone fortress known as Huska Castle. Its foreboding walls tower over travelers, with fake windows dotting its gray exterior. The castle was supposedly built at the order of Ottokar II of Bohemia during his reign in the late 1200s, with the alleged purpose of being an administration hub. Ownership of the castle would pass through countless hands over the centuries, but in spite of renovations, it remains an ominous location. The manner of its construction is particularly strange. It had no external fortifications, no source of water. The castle was also lacking a kitchen and housed no occupants at the time of its construction. These oddities make it seem as though Huska Castle was not built to keep something from getting in but rather to prevent something from getting out. The folklore surrounding Huska Castle only serves to deepen its mystery. Local stories tell of a bottomless pit in the land where the castle now sits. A pit so deep that no one could ever see the bottom. It was said that animal-human hybrids would emerge from the hole when darkness fell. Creatures stalked the earth and skies, hunting down anyone who was unfortunate enough to be within their sight. The beasts would then drag their prey into the depths where they were never seen again. During the castle's construction, prisoners who had been condemned to die were offered a pardon if they consented to being lowered by a rope into the hole and report what they see. A young prisoner volunteered and was lowered into the darkness below. He went silent for what felt like an eternity. Everyone looked down into the abyss, watching waiting for him to speak. Panic screams came from the pit as the man shrieked to be pulled out. When the man emerged, he looked as though he had aged over 30 years, his hair turned white. The prisoner then went incoherently insane and died shortly afterwards. Centuries later, during World War II, the Nazis allegedly conducted experiments in the castle. It was said that they sought to harness the power of hell itself. The castle still stands to this day as a hot spot for paranormal activity. The castle purportedly has several entities that lurk upon its premises. A bullfrog human hybrid, a headless horse, an old woman, and several other demonic beasts which managed to escape the pit. Strange pagan art adorns the walls of the castle chapel, the exact place which supposedly covers the pit. Depictions of bestial creatures and demons mingle with saints and angels. Screams and scratches are said to be heard from beneath the stone floor, where the ancient portal to hell remains buried. But is there any truth to this story? Make sure to let us know down in the comments below. Don't forget to like, share, and subscribe so you never miss a new mystery. This has been Cody here with Mystery Archives. and Make sure to join us next time as we continue our journey to discover the unexplained. What would you do if your home tried to harm you and your family? Would you pretend that it wasn't real, or would you try to leave? One family had to answer these questions as their dream home became a living nightmare. So join us as we dive into the haunting mystery of the Amityville Horror here on Mystery Archives. 1975. George Lutz tapped an anxious finger on his steering wheel and eyeballed the windows of the house ahead of him. His wife Kathy smiled as they pulled into the driveway. They hoped to find a new home for them and their three children, stumbling upon the perfect house for the perfect price. The Lutzes purchased what they thought was their dream come true during the move the family had the house blessed by a catholic priest named father ray george waved ray into the house while they carried furniture out of the moving truck the priest said about his business and soon emerged from the house with a concerning look on his face george attempted to pay him but father ray declined saying you won't be charged for this before the priest left He said he felt something strange in one of the upstairs bedrooms. George told him that they weren't planning on using that bedroom for anything other than a sewing room. And Ray replied, that's good, just as long as no one sleeps in there. Shortly after the Lutzes moved into their new home, they felt spots of intense cold random areas of the house. A sense of unease filled the air, and loud noises jolted the family awake in the middle of the night. The strange activity only continued to escalate. One morning, the family woke to a startling sight. A black slime-like substance was oozing from the keyholes of their doors, and a trail of it was leading from room to room. As time went on, they began to hear phantom footsteps and banging throughout the house. During one episode, George heard what sounded like music blasting from the basement. Quickly rushing down the stairs, George was confronted by a deafening silence. Despite what he had heard just minutes prior, there was no sign of anything or anyone. As more time continued to pass, the family began to notice more unsettling manifestations within their home. The now sewing room that Father Ray had felt uncomfortable in had slowly but surely began to be infested with flies. At first they thought perhaps the house being older This was just something that they weren't used to, but despite their best efforts to rid themselves of the insects, they can never quite quell the infestation. During their stay, the Lutz family found themselves changing in various ways. George began to seclude himself from his family and developed a strange obsession with the fireplace constantly complaining that he was cold. He chopped and placed as much wood as he possibly could within it. But no matter how much he piled on, the flames of the fire could never manage to warm him. Kathy too began to change and experience her own events. They began when she was often alone and vulnerable. She would feel the ice cold touch of unseen hands and at one point the hands even braided her hair. These events were eventually witnessed by George as well. One night as the couple slept, Kathy woke up with a gasp. George then saw staring back at him as he awakened the face of an old woman instead of the face of his wife. The shock quickly turned to terror as the couple attempted to figure out just what had happened to Kathy. But just as quick as it came, the mirage dissipated hours later, revealing Kathy's youthful face once again. The Lutzes by this time knew that they had to be dealing with something paranormal. First, not wanting to involve anyone else with whatever was in the house, they tried blessing the home, themselves. Kathy, who had always been religious, was the one who attempted the blessing. She moved from room to room, opening the windows and blessing each space. Things seemed to be going well when suddenly, one of the windows slammed upon one of their children's hands. This was no ordinary injury, however. The boy's hands were bruised and as flat as a pancake. Panic set in as the family geared up to rush to the hospital. But as they approached the front door, their son's hands were completely normal. This was bizarre for George, Kathy, and the other children to witness to say the least. But it was just as shocking to their son as well. It was as if the house didn't want them to leave. Tension within the home became so thick that you could cut it with a knife. Along with George and Kathy now barely talking, the children began to act more aggressively towards one another as well as their parents, leading to escalating punishments. The youngest child, Missy, developed a relationship with an imaginary friend that she named Jody. Jody lived in her bedroom and would reveal herself to Missy in the form of a large pig. At one point, George and Kathy were talking to Missy in her bedroom, but whatever they were discussing soon went by the wayside when the couple saw two red eyes staring at them from the window. Scared at the sight, Missy attempted to calm them down. She told them that it was only Jody letting them know that she wanted to come into the house. As more time went on, the family became more and more convinced that something had been wrong from the very beginning. When George and Kathy had first toured the house, the realtor had shuffled in discomfort. She said she wasn't sure if she should have told them before or after she showed them the house. The couple raised their eyebrows asking her what she meant. She said that this is the house the DeFeo murders took place in. The couple, remembered the year prior when the newspaper, smacked with headlines, described the gruesome murder of an entire family at the hands of their 23-year-old son, Ronald DeFeo Jr. Rifle in hand, Ronald crept into each room and shot his parents and all of his siblings in their beds while they slept. All victims were found face down each one never having woken up during the slaughter of the other. During the trial, Ronald claimed that voices told him to kill his family, but that he had no recollection of the murders ever taking place. He was subsequently convicted and given multiple life sentences in prison. Concerned for their children, George and Kathy asked them if they would be comfortable living in a place where such tragedy had occurred. The children nodded, and the deal was made. In order to put themselves more at ease, they called Father Ray to bless the house. Later on, Father Ray would reveal that during his blessing, he entered one of the rooms upstairs, where he heard a disembodied voice tell him to get out. George lay down next to his wife, staring at the ceiling, unable to sleep. He pondered the fact that everyone else slept on their stomachs, except for him. They slept face down, just as the DeFeos had. As he laid there, he began listening to the massive storm that was raging outside, when suddenly there was a bright burst of lightning lit up their entire bedroom. Temporarily blinded, he called out to Kathy and reached for her, but Kathy was not directly beside him. Once regaining his sight, George now saw that Kathy was levitating and floating towards the wall. He then began to hear loud bangs emanating from throughout the house, coupled by the screams of his children their beds were lifting up and slamming onto the floor by themselves. After awakening Kathy and bringing her back down to Earth, so to speak, they quickly rushed out of their bedroom where they witnessed their dog walking backwards in circles while vomiting. They then gathered the children and rushed to the family room where they contemplated what they should do next and what they could do. As they weathered this hellish storm. The following day, unsure of their plans, the Lutz fled that very afternoon, and they had only managed to live within the home for exactly twenty nine days. And despite the entire family witnessing the storm, there was no record of it ever existing. Trying to make sense of the horror that plagued their family, George and Kathy contacted world-renowned paranormal investigators, Ed and Lorraine Warren. The Warrens entered the home and almost immediately experienced activity. Lorraine said that sadness and depression permeated the house. When entering the basement, Ed described a powerful and human presence, He said it felt like standing beneath a waterfall. He called upon the force to reveal its identity and suddenly realized that this was no ordinary haunted house. After the initial investigation, the Warrens compiled a team of psychics to assist them. Among them was a psychic named Mary Passarella, and Mary considered herself to be a time walker A person capable of visualizing and experiencing the past in a location during the investigation Mary began reciting the Lord's Prayer and witnessed a group of figures saying the prayer backwards after completing the investigation Lorraine stated whatever is here in my estimation most definitely is of a negative nature. It has nothing to do with anyone who had once walked the earth in human form. It comes right from the bowels of the earth. The Warrens told the Lutzes that they felt that their house could only be saved through a cleansing performed by an ordained priest. However, the Lutzes were uncomfortable with this, saying that they felt like they'd be risking their lives. And how could they be asked to do that for a house? They decided to cut their losses and returned the property rather than put their children in any further danger. Years later, a book and movie adaptation would popularize their story along with allegations of it all being a hoax. However, George and Kathy Lutz lost not only their life savings but the majority of their credibility due to the story. They continue to maintain that their story was genuine for the rest of their lives. George later stated in a 2002 interview, it's my prayer that everyone in this room never go through such a thing. But if you know someone that does the hardest thing for people is the loss of being able to communicate with anyone else about it. Not being able to find anyone that can intelligently help. It's not talked about. It's not understood. And when it happens to you, you become an alien to everyone else. So was the story true or false? Make sure to let me know down in the comments below. And don't forget to like, share, and subscribe for new content. And as always, this has been Cody here with Mystery Archives. And make sure to join us next time as we continue to discover the unexplained on this channel we've explored many dark things and the case we're looking at today really does beg the question are there demonic forces in this world and can they cause human beings to commit horrific acts of evil and that was the question that was brought to the forefront of the infamous the devil made me do a case and today we're going to be looking at the real life story behind the latest conjuring movie now let us discover the unexplained beaded on Arn Johnson's brow as he sat beside his lawyer. The courtroom around him bustled with people both local and national. His case had attracted a lot of attention as it was the very first murder in the entire history of Brookfield, Connecticut. However, this was not the source of the media spectacle. Rather, it was the peculiar nature of the defense's claim of innocence. Namely, that Arne had been possessed when he stabbed his landlord five times and left him to die. But how could such events have taken place? What series of happenings drove a seemingly ordinary man to murder? To answer this, we will have to retrace the steps of the accused and discover the truth for ourselves. Debbie Glatzel carried cleaning equipment into her new house, followed by her boyfriend, Arn and 11-year-old brother, David. Eager to be finished with the move, they cleaned out the home as quickly as they could. David explored his room and noticed a feeling of unease crawl up his spine. Shrugging the feeling off, he began to slowly grab his things, when suddenly, the apparition of an old man appeared before him, and shoved him The man warned David that he would hurt all of them if they moved in and let out an unholy scream before vanishing into thin air David rushed to inform his sister but Arn and Debbie brushed off his concerns as an excuse to get out of his cleaning This however would not be the last time David would see the entity Strange activity continued after the family moved in Though frightening noises emerged from the attic at night, most of the phenomena centered around David. The boy experienced regular visions of the old man, appearing as a demonic monster which threatened to steal his soul. David suffered horrific night terrors and found his body covered in unexplained scratches and bruises. Attempting to rid themselves of the evil that was now plaguing them, They hired a Catholic priest to bless the house. However, this only seemed to anger the paranormal forces within the home. The family finally admitted that their residence was evil and moved in with Debbie's mother. And as time went on, the devilry only continued to escalate as David began to change for the worse. Twelve days after the ordeal, they called upon the services of world-renowned demonologists, Ed and Lorraine Warren. The Warrens had made a name for themselves, investigating high-profile hauntings such as the Amityville House and the Einfield Poltergeist. During the investigation, Lorraine witnessed a black mist materialize next to David. Debbie told the Warrens that they had seen David crumple and choke beneath the blows of invisible hands with red marks appearing upon his body. David's behavior consisted of growling, hissing, speaking in tongues, and reciting passages from the Bible. The Warrens declared that David was in fact possessed, and three lesser exorcisms were performed upon the boy, during which Lorraine claimed he levitated. As the exorcisms continued, Arne taunted the demon within the boy, to possess him instead. The warrant stopped him and warned him not to challenge the demon. And after this incident, Arn returned to the rental property where he investigated a well where the demon was said to lurk. He supposedly made eye contact with the demon and blacked out. Deciding it would be best for Debbie and Arn to leave, The couple moved out of her mother's house and began renting an apartment. Their landlord, Alan Bono, also hired Debbie as a dog groomer. After settling in, Arne started to behave in a manner just like David. He would fall into trances where he would growl and hallucinate, but would later have no memory of it. On February 16, 1981, Arne called in sick to work and joined Debbie at her work along with her sister, Wanda, and Debbie's nine-year-old cousin, Mary. Bono decided to treat them all to lunch at a local bar, and proceeded to get inebriated. After lunch, the group returned to the kennel, where Bono became angry. He grabbed a hold of Mary and refused to let go of her. Arne told Bono to release her, and Mary ran, and Debbie and Wanda attempted to stop the conflict. Arne began to growl pulled out his pocket knife, where he proceeded to stab Mono five times, one of which stretched from his stomach to the base of his heart. Arne then ran from the scene and was eventually apprehended by police. Mono would later die of his wounds. The next day, Lorraine informed the Brookfield police that Johnson was possessed at the time of the murder. Not long afterwards, international media soon blew up the story with sensational reporting. Martin Manila, Arne's lawyer, received calls from all over the world about the trial. Martin traveled to England to meet with other lawyers who had been involved in cases similar to his own. However, they had never gone to trial. He threatened to subpoena the priests who oversaw David Glatzel's exorcism if they did not cooperate with legal defense. The trial began on October 28th of 1981. Manila attempted to submit a plea if not guilty by demonic possession, but the judge Robert Callahan rejected the defense. He argued that no such defense could ever be used. and would be unscientific to allow testimony. Manila decided to opt for self-defense instead. and As a result, the jury could not legally consider possession as an explanation for the murder. The jury deliberated for three days before convicting Johnson on November 24, 1981 of first-degree manslaughter. He was sentenced to 10 to 20 years in prison, but he would ultimately only serve five The story has long been the topic of controversy and the inspiration for countless books, movies, and TV shows. In 1983, Lorraine Warren helped writer Gerard Brittle publish a book about the events called The Devil in Connecticut. Lorraine said the profits from the book were paid to the family, and it was in fact confirmed that $2,000 was given by the publisher. However, David and his brother Carl Glatzel sued the authors and book publishers for violating their right to privacy. They argued they depicted Arne as the villain of the story and exploited their brother's mental illness. According to Carl, he claimed the publicity forced him to drop out of school, lose friends, and business opportunities. Lorraine Warren defended her work, saying the six priests involved in the case agreed that the boy was possessed and the paranormal phenomena was real. Arne and Debbie eventually married, and support the Warrens' account of demonic possession. And ultimately, the story remains embedded in the public consciousness, and received another adaptation in the form of The Conjuring 3 in 2021. Debbie maintains an interest in the supernatural, and claims that Arne's biggest mistake was challenging the demon that possessed David. You'll never take that step, she said you never challenge the devil. But what is the truth? Was there really demonic possession involved? Let us know down in the comments below. This has been Cody here at Mystery Archives. Thank you so much for taking the time to watch and I hope you'll join us next time as we continue to discover the unexplained. Ouija boards. While some consider them to be nothing more than a harmless toy, Others believe them to be a dangerous tool that can open doors one can never close again. Today, we will be discussing one such case that truly makes you think that there could be something lurking within the shadows. This case was the first documented paranormal encounter involving law enforcement and was the inspiration behind the terrifying film, Veronica. We will be discussing the Spanish tragedy of Estefania Lazaro here on Mystery Archives. Estefania Lazaro was a regular teenage girl that enjoyed things any normal teenager would, visiting friends, gossiping about boys, and going to school. But during this year, little did she know that she would alter her life as well as many others. Unknown to her parents at the time, Estefania as well as several of her other friends began to take an interest in the occult and began a fascination with Ouija Boys. During this time, one of her friend's boyfriends passed away after being involved in a motorcycle accident. Distraught and heartbroken, the group attempted to console their friend by attempting to bring her closure by making contact with the boy who had passed away via seance. One day while the girls were in class, they snuck out of their studies into a discreet room located in the basement of the school where they proceeded to set up a Ouija board along with several candles to begin the seance. They placed their hands upon the planchette of the board and began to ask their questions. Surprisingly, within a matter of minutes, they made contact. The planchette upon the board began to move on its own uncontrollably. And as the terror began to set in, Estefania began to seize and convulse on the floor. As the candles extinguished themselves, and the smoke entered her mouth and nose. Their panic manifested itself in shrill screams, which soon caught the attention of a nun who happened to be nearby. She interrupted the ritual and damaged the board. The girls were soon reprimanded, but Estefania was sent to the nurse's office to be examined, as she was found tucked in the corner of the room, frozen like a statue on the floor. Unfortunately, whatever door that was open that day would never be closed again. Over the next several months, the young girl began to change. She began to have fits of rage where she attacked anyone that would come near her and would bark like a rabid dog. These horrible episodes would typically be followed by a seizure. She also began to tell her parents that she was seeing dark disfigured creatures walking past her room at night. She described them as having no faces, wearing crimson cloaks, and asking her to go with them. Terrified for their daughter's life, they took Estefania to several doctors, but each time none of the physicians could find anything wrong with her. The bizarre episodes peaked on July 15, 1991, after Estefania violently attacked her younger sister. She collapsed and had foam coming out of her mouth. She was rushed to a nearby hospital in a coma, and died shortly after. That was not the end of the paranormal activity, however. Within several hours of the young girl's passing, her mother heard Estefania screaming out her name, and the voice seemed to be coming from all rooms inside the house. The activity would continue for the next several years, and varied in intensity. The family began to hear the disembodied laughter of an old man emanating from inside the walls of their home. Objects moved and broke on their own, and violent attacks from invisible entities became a regular occurrence. During one such event, Estefania's younger sister was picked up off the floor with her wrist slammed against a wall. The happening soon came to a head exactly two years to the day of Estefania's passing when a photo of her hanging in the family's living room mysteriously caught fire. Surprisingly, no other objects were harmed except the photo, and the only spot that was burned was Estefania's face. The family, desperate for help, decided to call the police. And shortly after this, Inspector Jose Negri and his team arrived on the site later that night. They found the family in a state of terror outside of their apartment building during a raging thunderstorm. Two agents stayed with the family outside of the residence, while Negri and two other agents entered the apartment. The report that was written by the inspector has become an interesting testimony and certainly makes one think that there could be something beyond this world. Upon entering the residence, the agents first checked to see if the home was clear of potential pranksters or burglars. They checked a large wardrobe door which was locked upon inspection, and within a matter of seconds, the door violently flung open. They then heard what sounded like loud screams emanating from the walls and the balcony, only when they inspected said areas, there was no one to be found. They began to observe a strange brown substance that materialized out of thin air upon the living room wall and various furniture the family owned. Their time in the apartment concluded abruptly when they watched a crucifix be ripped off the wall by an unseen force. This left three distinct inch-deep scratch marks within the wall itself. Shortly after these events were documented, the Gutierrez family sold their home and moved. The new occupants never witnessed or experienced any of the inexplicable phenomena. The case would become one of the most famous paranormal cases in Spain and was further documented by federal police officers who could not prove what had taken place. The story would later gain worldwide notoriety in its on-screen adaptation in the form of the movie known as Veronica. Having watched this film and become interested in the real life case, I have to say that it was truly terrifying and it was a very well-made film. Some key details have been changed, but it really does offer a creative insight into what really happened. With that being said, I urge you to look into the case for yourself because it's truly remarkable, but tragic as well. Leave me a comment what your thoughts are about the case or what you thought of the movie. Don't forget to like share and subscribe and I will see you in the next episode of Discover the unexplained. Thank you so much for watching and have yourself a wonderful day. Atchison, Kansas has become infamous over the years for its countless legends and ghost stories. Located in northeast Kansas, it's situated on the bluffs of the Missouri River offering sweeping views of the River Valley beyond. Grand Victorian homes and cobblestone roads recall glorious days where wealthy lumber merchants and railroad magnates once occupied this town. But as one walks the streets today, they can't help but get a tingle up their spine and a cold shudder in their soul. Atchison is home to many haunted places, but today we are discussing a place that's said to harbor something demonic. Today we are discussing Sally's house here on Mystery Archive. The home that would become known as the Sally House was originally built in 1867 by the Finney family and would become a generational home. Several generations of the family would live there between 1867 and 1939. There are four confirmed deaths within the family during that time at which they lived at the home. Michael Finney in 1872, Charles Catherine's father of Kate Finney, and Richard Finney in 1874, and finally Agnes Finney in 1939.
1: The name Sally House originates from an unconfirmed death that allegedly took place within the home, but can't 100% be confirmed by historical records, which weren't always kept at that time. The story goes that Charles Finney, the son of Michael and Kate, went on to become a doctor and made the home his residence as well as his practice. The front served as the office space and examination room while the doctor and his family lived upstairs. One day, a frantic mother arrived carrying her six-year-old daughter, Sally, who had collapsed from severe abdominal pain. The doctor quickly diagnosed that the young girl was suffering from an appendectomy and knew that he had to take her into surgery immediately. Believing that the appendix would soon burst, he quickly laid Sally onto an operating table, wrapped himself, and gave her the general anesthesia that was available at the time, which was more like ether. This placed her under so that the surgery could begin
0: the doctor now fully dressed for surgery began the operation. The only problem was that Sally wasn't fully asleep. As the first abdominal incision was made, the young girl began to scream and thrash. Through trying to restrain the child and apply proper anesthesia, her wound and blood loss were soon too severe. Sally's scream suddenly stopped and she grew pale and limp. She sadly died on the operating table, her last memories being of a man who she believed was torturing her.
1: The home left the Finney family in 1939 and since then has transferred various owners. It soon became a rental property and has had multiple people living there over the decades. Out of all those who lived there, at least one person may have been involved in satanic worship, which could have possibly led to what we're about to discuss. More on that to come.
0: Prior to 1992, there had been no paranormal activity reported, but that soon would change. During that year, Tony and Deborah Pickman began to rent the home, and slowly but surely realized that something felt very off the activity began with objects moving in their newborn daughter's room specifically their daughter's stuffed animals began to be moved and placed into a circle formation sometimes within the room itself and other times in other parts of the house but always in a circle formation
1: at first the family was in alarm because tony and his brother were notorious pranksters towards one another. But after Tony confronted his brother while he was at his house over the incident, his brother was clueless about what was taking place. And as the two discussed the incident, before their very eyes, the toys began to place themselves in a circle upon the floor within Tony's daughter's room. Bewildered and shocked, they now knew they were dealing with something paranormal. The activity continued.
0: Lights began to flicker on and off and strange knocks began to frighten the family late at night. Not knowing where else to turn, the Pickmans reached out for help. They contacted multiple psychics and paranormal groups and were eventually aided by psychic Peter James.
1: After Peter's arrival and initial walkthrough of the home, he sensed that there was a spirit of a little girl and another spirit lurking within the home, something much more powerful and darker than anything he had experienced before. Peter said that the child's name was Sally and that she was responsible for moving the objects around the home and he believed that Sally had died from an acute appendicitis at the hands of Dr. Charles Finney. He first believed that the darker spirit could perhaps have been the girl's defensive mother. Then he suggested that they could help appease the spirit of the little girl by offering her a toy. The family got Sally her very own doll and made her a small space within their house so she could feel accepted by them. This was in hopes that the girl's spirit would move on and this would in turn allow her mother's spirit to move on as well and thus the haunting would cease.
0: The activity began to focus on Tony Pickman, who was vehemently against trying to appease the spirit in any way, and whatever force that was lurking soon escalated to violence towards him. Tony began to have large scratches all over his body, and at night he would have horrible dreams that the home was on fire and that a creature was trying to take their daughter. He would later describe his daily waking life within the house as oppressive And like he couldn't breathe without the feeling as if he was being watched. Alongside these, Tony began to have intrusive thoughts of harming both his daughter and his wife, which he would have never thought of his own free will.
1: The activity peaked when a series of small fires began to erupt throughout the home on a weekly basis. Worn thin and fully oppressed at this point, Tony's thoughts of harming his family were becoming consuming and overwhelming. Fortunately, he made a decision to have the family leave the home for good. They would never return to Sally's house.
0: But that wasn't the end of the activity, however. The owner of the property at the time of the Pickmans was a man by the name of Les Smith. Intrigued and bewildered at the accusations of paranormal occurrences, Smith decided to do some investigating of his own, and he ended up discovering a pentagram under the original floorboards within the basement of the home. But just what rituals were conducted there, and by whom, that's another mystery in and of itself. But many have speculated that whatever ritual that was conducted perhaps summoned something demonic.
1: Since Smith's initial discovery, a plethora of different investigations have taken place at the residence, both physical and paranormal. During one such investigation, a luminol test was conducted, and evidence of blood splatter within the master bedroom closet was found, as well as tatters of a bloody sweater were also found within the attic. Could these perhaps be physical clues as to what darker things could have sparked the haunting at the Sally House? Other phenomenon reported are unexplained EVPs, violent physical attacks, including one investigator being choked unconscious, electronic failures, lasting depression, nightmares, and poltergeist activity manifesting those who have visited the house itself.
0: Given what the Pikmin say they experienced and the amount of investigation conducted since 1992, there certainly seems to be something dark that still lurks within the Sally House. It's certainly not a place I would like to experience for myself. As far as a current update, as far as I've researched, the house still remains and I believe you can actually tour it if you so wish. But it's not something I'd recommend for the spiritually weak or the faint of heart given the stories. And on that note, I'd like to say I'm not sponsored or affiliated with the property in any way. I just find the stories and the legends of the place extremely intriguing. And I never condone anyone trespassing under any circumstances. This is all just for storytelling and entertainment purposes only. With all that being said, guys, what do you think caused the haunting at the Sally House? Or do you think it's haunted at all? Let me know what you think down in the comments below. I'd also like to thank our very special guest bryce of esoteric atlanta for joining us today on this very special episode of mystery archives you can catch part one of the sally house on her channel she does a fantastic job of talking about so many different topics and i highly recommend that you go check out her content i'll be linking her down in the description below i also wanted to give a huge shout out to our wonderful artist bc parrot who does such an awesome job on both the artwork and animations for our channel and I highly recommend that you guys go follow his Instagram I'll be linking that down in the description as well I also want to give a huge shout out to our channel members uh, that would be Hannah Angela and JC thank you guys so much for supporting the channel and uh, I'll definitely make sure to get some new content out to you guys a lot sooner than everyone else for all your uh, continued support and if you guys would like to support the channel just check out our channel memberships we uh, offer all sorts of insider stuff I post bloopers Uh, behind the scenes art from bc parrot and a whole lot more and we're planning on uh, putting a whole lot more content on there as soon as we can so thank you guys so much yet again don't forget to like share and subscribe to us and thank you so much for watching and i'll see you next time as we continue to discover the unexplained